are back for yet another week, kicking off our next six months of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Lynn Elias, MovieSharkDeBlore.com. You can find me at 150 different print and online places around the world, online. And then my, my cinematic cohort is back. Greg Strizavazdi is here. Hello. 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 So, post-mortem, how's, how's the first six months been for Behind the Lens for you? Well, I don't know. How's it been for you? I, it's, been, it's been dreadful. I've had a really bad time. Really, really bad time. No, but actually, it's been quite informative. Um, it's I, I'm really looking forward to the next chapter. The first chapter was very good for me, and uh, I think I've improved along the way. I mean, we've had we've had a lot of good a lot of good uh, interviews. Yeah, a lot of Al- great interviews. Alan yeah. Tudyk. Alan Tudyk. Just so many great interviews. Edward James Olmos. Yeah. And of course, yeah. last week you missed out on Lance Henriksen. Was Henriksen really cool? Henriksen yeah. is amazing. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. And he even imparted a little bit of uh, Cagney and Lacey trivia. Oh, nice. That's, that was a great show. A couple of things. One so. is because he goes way back. Way, he goes way back. Wow. So, yeah. yeah. You know. So. But we've got a jam-packed show today. By I the mean, way, you always have a jam-packed show. There's well, never <laughs> last week yeah. wasn't quite as jam-packed. Oh, really? okay. I wish I wish I had had... Uh, a few more Terminator Genesis okay. things. Okay. But, you know, contrary to most, I really love that film. Oh, really? A lot of people didn't like I haven't seen it yet. I, Everyone... I love the structure of a temporal nexus that allows parallel timelines yeah. and changing the course of history. And you mentioned that I listened to the press conference and you asked them about that kind of timeline narrative, right? And yeah. they gave a pretty good answer. Yeah, so. and then I followed it up in my two-on-one with Dave Ellison and Dana Goldberg, the okay. the producers okay. of the film. So, but uh, and we've got some more great films coming out okay. like this week, and you'll hear next week from my exclusives with the co-writers and directors of the new film from Blumhouse. Oh, The Gallows. Okay, The Gallows. It's been it's been getting a lot of great promotion. So, and you actually did the interviews. Out of a high school, is that at, correct? Yes, at oh. Hollywood High School. How is that? I've never been to Hollywood High School. Uh, you know, as far as press junkets go, I have yeah. I have tried to never return to high school again once <laughs> I graduated. Right, I went back to my own high school twice in thirty-seven years. And did you feel like you were in the gallows when you were actually going back to high school? That well, kind the of worst experience? part was yeah. the same seats were in the auditorium. The carpet uh-huh. was still the same. The lockers were still scratched up in the same colors. Um, <laughs> You know, hopefully it'll be another 37 years before I go back there again. Right. Or maybe not, because my high school, they're actually doing a $40 million remodel on okay. this year and next. But And are you excited about that, or you could care less because that was high school? No, I'm actually very excited okay. because my yeah. nephews, whom I do not speak with, will actually be attending there. <laughs> okay. Okay, cool. So, cool. And it's going to be, the, the renovation should be good. It should be. Yeah. But, you know, Hollywood High School, I have to say, it could it could stand with, if nothing else, a good cleaning Oh, like you okay. see all of these incredible Wait. trophies for their drama department and things over the years. Wasn't It's a Wonderful Life shot there in Hollywood High School? It may have been. Okay, let me look that up. But but I all it of was. these great, all of these tro- dramatic uh, trophies, competitions, and they're sitting in these you know beautiful old glass and heavy dark mahogany bookcases, mm-hmm. but nobody's dusted them, and it's it's such a shame. How can you not dust them? That's just. A glaring omission, Because I think. when you look back at the history of Hollywood High and the talent that has gone through their drama department, okay, and you think about some of the legends that 
undoubtedly contributed to a lot of those awards. That was Beverly Hills High School, by the way, for It's a Wonderful Life, not okay. Hollywood Hills. But, Hollywood High School. But, I mean, it was it was fun. Yeah. It was okay. actually fun, and it fits the theme of the movie. And, of course, considering Blumhouse is behind it, I'm not hmm. surprised. Um, but, yeah, so we're going to have some, some exclusive audio next week on that. We're still under embargo. Oh. Until the 9th for review. Okay. Okay. Well, what I will say, though, is a couple months ago, Jason Blum actually said to me, he goes, I ne- wait, do you see what I have next? He goes, I know you don't like found footage films. Oh, okay. Jason knows, and he knows that about me. As a rule, I generally don't, because I think people have turned it into a gimmick as opposed to serving a cinematic purpose. Okay, I can and see that, yeah. he said, but trust me, you're going to love The Gallows. And I guess since you're under under embargo, I guess you can you say if he was accurate or not? I guess you was I, it a smiley face or a unsmiley face? Let's put it this way: a very, very, very big smiley face. Okay, good. Well, very big smiley face. That hopefully is part of the embargo window. And it's a yeah. lot. It's a lot of new talent coming okay. up. Kathy Lee Gifford and Frank Gifford's daughter. Oh, okay. Is one of the stars. Wow. Wow. Cassidy. Okay. She's one of the stars of the film. All right. So, I mean, and there's uh, there's some great, great up and coming talents in this film. So I can't wait for next week. And before we get into all the movies we're going to cover right now, I just want to make a quick, quick pick of the week. If you're in Los Angeles area at the New Art Theater, they're doing a, um, they're showing for the next several days, The Third Man, a 4K restoration of the classic film, The Third Man with Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. I have. It's one of my all-time favorite movies, and I'm a huge Orson Welles fan, and he plays this black marketeer named Harry Lyme, and it's about how Joseph Cotton, who also worked, as you know, with Welles in Citizen Kane, Joseph Cotton plays this dime store novelist who goes to Europe to find his friend, who Harry Lyme, who is supposedly dead, but since it's Orson Welles, He's really not dead. Now, that's not a big spoiler alert thing, but it's it's really about their relationship, and it has some of the most beautiful visual images and a great score brought by Anton Karras, 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 yeah. uh, that wonderful zither music. So, anyways, it's going to be a, it's a 4K restoration at the New Art, and it looks I've seen it. It looks absolutely wonderful and crisp, and that's exactly what these kind of great films need. And, you know, one of the things about The Third Man that I really love is, for years I thought it was directed by Carol Reed. I thought, mm-hmm. I, I was saying, okay, Carol Reed directed it, but really it's it's an Orson Welles. It's an Orson Welles. Yeah. yeah. So I was actually, this is the visual aids for the people who watch this on YouTube. There's this book called This Is Orson Welles, which has Peter Bogdanovich interviewing Welles over the years. And Welles said, really, the Third Man is actually Carol Reed's film, and mm-hmm. there's only a couple of visual touches that he put. There's a sequence where Harry Lyme's hands are touching a grate, and I don't want to say exactly the don't context. Don't say why. That, yeah. Don't say why. But just a few visual touches. But um, if you haven't seen The Third Man, I highly recommend this movie. It's kind of a film noir. Uh, yes, with, yeah. which explains our other visual aid here, the film noir encyclopedia. Yeah. which this is one of the best film noir guides, and it actually breaks down noir into the various types of noir. And as all of our TCM party and classic fans know out there, we have been having the Summer of Darkness on yeah. TCM. How is, I have not seen anything under the Summer of Darkness, unfortunately. There I've been too lazy. Is, 
everything there is is phenomenal. Okay. Um, but you know, getting back to what you were saying about Joseph Cotton starring in the third right, man, right. a lot of people may know Joseph Cotton, you know, as being a favorite with Hitchcock. I mean, he was in uh, Shadow of a Doubt with right. Lisa Wright, and just absolutely <laughs> phenomenal in that yeah. film. And that yeah. I think Shadow of a Doubt, I think, is one of the unsung gems of Hitchcock's career. Yeah, because when people think of Hitchcock, they think of Psycho, The Birds, Psycho, Vertigo, Vertigo, The Birds, Rope. Rope, um, especially Rear Window. Yes. You know, all the cinephiles love Rope because that's supposedly that one-take film. But, right. But yeah, Shadow of a Doubt to me is just right up there. I mean, it and the cinematography just dazzles. You know, yeah. and, and I really hope that those of you that listen or that, or that watch us, you know, that you do check out classics, be it on TCM, be it renting from Netflix, because... You know, as I've said many times before, as my father preached to me mm. my whole life, you have to know where you where it comes from in order to understand where the industry is now and where it's going. The very foundations of cinematography, lighting, lensing, these are from the masters, the people that started it. And right. it really gives you a great appreciation and, and gives you a point of reference when you see things that are happening in cinema today. And also with films like Shadow of a Doubt, Hitchcock, you know, with Hitchcock or Carol Reed's The Third Man, people who haven't seen these these films can actually get visual reference that will inform their own filmmaking and storytelling today. So yep. even though they're films that seem like they were years and years ago, there are so many beautiful visual flourishes and influences that filmmakers of all age can use Mm-hmm. For their current toolkit, especially yeah. with technology today, they can. There can be so many beautiful innovations today, as mm-hmm. far as the visual scope. And I think we're going to cover one of those films, Yosemite, in this hour too. Uh, yes, so. we are. And yeah, and it's. I'm glad you mentioned that about reference because Ralph Eggleston, who did the production design on Inside Out, the number one family film. Yeah, in... I, I still haven't seen that. Oh my god! I'm so late. Oh yeah, my god! Really? Yeah. And yeah. You know, and of course, a couple of weeks ago, you also heard um, my exclusives with Jim Murphy, mm. who wrote and directed Lava, which precedes Inside Out. So you mm. get a short film and a feature. But Ralph Eggleston, he relied heavily on the golden age of Hollywood and oh, guys wow. like Menzies and oh. their production design, their, their illustrations when he was designing for Inside Out. So wow. it's, you know. History has a purpose. And you could see that influence in the film? That kind of... You can see it in a lot of the design. There's a whole dream sequence where, you know, like a Hollywood studio, just like Paramount and MGM rolled together, (laughs) there's a whole, you know, dream productions. And it it harkens, the look harkens to The Wizard of Oz Mm. and the Emerald City, but then you've got the big gates like Paramount. And it's, you know, all of these touches, and a lot of it comes from story, but so much of that, the minute you see it, the visual reference right away, you're taken to another time and place. And if you're a kid, it opens Mm. up a new world for you. If you're an adult, it takes you back. Ah, that's great. I have to see that. You have to, you have to see it. And and our wonderful sound engineer has now seen Inside Out twice. Yeah. He's nodding. He's nodding. Yes. He's, he's, I'm nodding because there's tears in my eyes. <laughs> I think he cried the first time, I believe. Yes, he did. Well, the second time I saw it, uh, there was this groups, group of girls. And I know we've talked about this off air, but there was a group of girls just Snapchatting the entire oh. the entire movie. I, they had seen it also, so they were filming certain scenes and, and posting it online. <gasps> That's what Snapchatting is. It's an app where you send video to, right. to other people. Yeah. So that kind of took me out of the... Uh, 
the experience a little bit. Yeah. And a, a funny a side note, there was this little girl who kept who kept going, no, I'm not going to spoil anything, but she kept going, I don't understand why all of you guys are getting sad because the character's going to do this or this is going <laughs> to do this. So she was being snooty and, and she knew the oh whole plot. Oh, my God. But during the, the last emotional scene where, where, the, yes. where the family's all together, she started crying. Aww. She was crying up a storm and I was like, ha, ha. <laughs> Well, Why are you crying if this is going to happen, little girl, huh? I uh, felt really, really, really powerful. Okay, well, I'm really distressed that people were actually in there filming parts of the film. That's that's the common. That's so common. I, I had the oh app Snapchat, and I was getting... I, I practically saw all of Magic Mike XXL on Snapchat. Wow. Because of because of people posting scenes online. Well, you know, and that's not something that would be happening in Arclight, and... Okay, right. At 11.15, in a few minutes, we're going to have Gretchen McCourt joining us again, Vice President of Programming for Arclight, and Peter Baxter, President and CEO of Slamdance. We're going to be talking about this month's Arclight Slamdance Cinema Club that's July 12th and 13th. But we're going to have to bring that up uh, to Gretchen about this issue of people Snapchatting. And I have not seen this happen in an Arclight theater, but... Probably because they're really on it. (laughs) But yes, I think it's worth her weighing in today on that for us now that Brian has has brought that up. Yeah. But yeah, but we do. To get back to our, after we digress and catch up, and it's so much fun having Greg back here this week. (laughs) I I miss Greg when he's not here. I love it when Kit's here. Yeah. I love it it when Kit Bowen is here, themoviekit.com. But. it's, I, it's, you get a nice rotation of uh, a of, rotation yes. of my friends and yes, colleagues, yes. whom I respect and admire. There are so few. <laughs> but um, those two films that are being screened, we're going to talk about those later. But you love both of those movies, right? I really do. The one is a documentary, um, which we'll talk about next week. Okay. On her own is a documentary. That's next Monday. But ArcLight Cinema Club, uh, ArcLight Slam Dance Cinema Club this month. Two incredible films. Uh, Sunday, July 12th at 8 o'clock is Yosemite. Okay. Um, it was the closing night uh, gala at Slamdance this year. Okay. Uh, written and directed by Gabrielle Demestre. I think that's how I say her last name. If I screwed it up, my the apologies, right. Gabrielle. Um, but written and directed by Gabrielle. She was a former student of James Franco's at New York, at NYU Film School. It's she adapted his book Palo Alto for this film, mm-hmm. and it is truly. Uh, I really think it's a wonderful cinematic experience, and it really speaks volumes as to Gabrielle's talents. Yeah, it, it's a great film to watch at the ArcLight because it's beautifully shot, and yeah. it's a it's a really compelling narrative about childhood. So so we're and a mountain lion, and Gabrielle will be yeah. joining us at eleven forty five. Cool. Uh, Gretchen and Peter will be joining us momentarily. One of them is calling in a moment here. And then at 11.30, we also have Stacey Sherman about her feature directorial writer-director of The Breakup Girl that bodes a killer cast. Absolutely killer cast. Really good performances. Comedy drama. Comedy drama. Um, And... We're going to talk about that with Stacy at 11.30. And what's really interesting with Stacy is that she was also an associate producer on the documentary Chasing Ice a couple years ago. I've never seen that. Oh, it is one of the most powerful documentaries featuring Nat Geo photographer okay. James Balog. Okay. Um, going around and all about the ice melting in uh, Greenland, all the, all the uh, oh. continental shelves. Hmm. So, but 
We have Gretchen and Peter. Let's see if I can do this right. Peter, are you there? I am. Good morning. Hi, Peter. Morning. Let let me tie in Gretchen here. Right. Gretchen, are you there? I am. Good morning, Debbie. Hi, Hello. Peter. So we have Hi, Gretchen. we have Gretchen McCord, Vice President of Programming for ArcLight, and we have Peter Baxter, the wonderful president and founder of Slam Dance. Greg is back with us today. Good morning. And Good morning, Greg. Very excited to talk about this month's ArcLight Slam Dance Cinema Club. What a great film on Sunday, July 12th with Yosemite. How how did you go about deciding, especially, now, I'll ask you this, Peter, because Yosemite was the closing night film at Slamdance this year, was it not? Yes, it was, and we were very excited to also premiere the film as well for the for the first time, and uh, it was a great, uh, great success at Slamdance, and, uh, and now we're very excited to bring it to the Arclight Hollywood. Was there ever a question, Gretchen, in your mind that Yosemite would not be a great addition to the cinema club at Arclight? Oh, not at all. <laughs> um, I was fortunate enough to see the movie and loved it. And obviously with um, with the names attached to to the film and the press and the reaction to the film, we knew it was going to be a you know it was going to be a great addition and the energy I can't wait to be there on Sunday. The energy in the in the building is is going to be fantastic with this film. You know, what does it do for uh, for both of you when you have a name like James Franco attached to a film? Well, I think with uh, with, with James Franco, what you have is actually, you know, a, a DIY filmmaker, uh, which, you know, we, we, we love and support these filmmakers at, uh, at Slamdance. And, uh, you know, with someone who is so well-known, um, who has a following, and um, that obviously helps to promote and, uh, and, and, and market the film for Gabriella and also for the screening series. It's a dilemma, really, in independent film because, um, you know, there are many, many great independent films and filmmakers who aren't so well-known or are just coming through that deserve uh, an opportunity to have their work shown at festivals, at sand arts and at the Arclight. Uh, but when you have a name like James attached to it, of course, it just gives that film that boost uh, which people sort of can, you know, quickly see as, as something that they, you know, that they bought, they already do know, and um, yeah, it might be more likely for them to come and see, come and see the picture. But for us at Sundance, you know, filmmakers who are coming through, they're equally as important, and you can see that, of course. That's what we've been doing to date with the, uh, with the Cinema Club, and we'll carry on doing that. But it's just great to have someone like who, like James, who's so supportive of. Uh, the filmmakers that you see at Sandbox, the filmmakers that are coming through and are very talented. Peter, is one of the great things about what you do is Slam Dance also is kind of a breeding ground and nurturing ground for filmmakers, and they can not just showcase their work, but they can actually just have that dialogue and collaborate with other filmmakers and just learn through Slam Dance about the process. That must be a great part of what you do. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for bringing it up. It is. It's really important to us, and uh, it is that showcase for emerging filmmakers. And again, when you have someone like James Franco who's behind that, not just with Yosemite, but with other many other films, in fact, uh, it's a great, it's a really great collaboration. And, and you know, James was at the festival this year and came out 
support the film. It, it did get a lot of attention, and uh, it's just great that he's interested in this area of, uh, of, of filmmaking. Now, Gretchen, what does this what does this do for the cachet of ArcLight when you can add a film like Yosemite to the Cinema well, Club lineup? Yeah, two. I was two points to, to Peter's point. Um, you know, one thing with James is is no matter what the film is, if it's something. A Yosemite, something, you know, just a small film that he's very passionate about, or a big studio movie, he is behind it 100%, and that's just, that's so meaningful for us um, when we're showing the film, because that support and that energy reaches the guests, and they feel that, and they know, you know, that makes them more interested, and it also, it also shines a light on the festival as a whole, so you know, my hope is that, you know, people that, that take notice of James and take notice of Yosemite and are out to see this film realize that we're doing this, you know, two screenings a month, very diverse lineup. They can see so many different films. And, you know, and that keeps them interested in, in the, the series as a whole because that's our, our goal is to get exposure for all of these new filmmakers. Um, and I was just looking at this, you know, at the seating. And Debbie, I know you're going to do um, some giveaways with your listeners, but we the seats are going very quickly for you, somebody. So it's going to be a really fun night, and um, people need to act quickly if they if they want to get seats. Yeah, and that that's just it. We have the promotion up. Uh, Greg has it on, uh, on deepestdream.com. On deepestdream.com. Mm-hmm. People can email in. They get their choice of a pair of tickets for either Yosemite. There's going to be two sets of two, either for Yosemite or for the Monday night, mm-hmm. uh, July 13th feature, On Her Own, which, mm-hmm. talk about diversity of programming. You go from something as cinematic and as emotionally evocative and powerful as Yosemite to an equally powerful documentary about, you know, a part of this country about the family farm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just representative of what Slamdance does and what the Arclight does so well is presenting that diversity to the audience. Yeah, I have to give Peter all the credit. I mean, the the handling of the programming for this, the Cinema Club has just been, you know, it's just been done with such care. And I couldn't be prouder of what we're offering to the public, to our guests as far as diversity of film. I mean, they, they, these films are all so meaningful and, and all just so well done, and it just really goes to show what great storytelling is happening out there. Well, you know, and last yeah. month, the one night we had the double feature, the short, and the feature film, both showcasing Huntington's disease, mm-hmm. something else that's very relevant that people are very passionate about, and it enlightens. And so many of the films that you have been programming, Peter, especially these documentaries, they are very enlightening to the public when they take the time to sit and watch them. Yeah, well, um, it's what we you know what we set out to do, and I think that it's nice to hear you both sort of speak to this, is sort of to represent uh, at the art like the um, the type of programming that happens um, at the at the festival. And obviously, what you're seeing here, as you said, is a diverse diverse program um, and it's come through the filmmakers who have actually taken part um, in Sandlands before when they had their own films at the festival and they come back each year to uh, to program then the, the, the new program that is going to represent the new the, you know the new showcase and what you 
um, nearly always see, and it's especially true with documentaries um, like um, Huntington's Dance and uh, On Her Own, is projects which have taken a very long time to craft. Um, and uh, this is why I think they really sort of stand out because the filmmakers have put much of them, you know, themselves at life into making of these films. And On Her Own, on Her Own is an example of that. Of course, with Huntington's Dance, it's perhaps the, um, it's the film which took the most amount of time uh, to be made ever at Sundance, but there's a lot of passion. And, you know, with that uh, time that, that it takes to craft the stories, you have this, you do, you have this remarkable um, insight into, in, 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 into these different stories. What do the two of you look for for new listeners this week who aren't familiar with the, the Arclight Slam Dance Cinema Club? What do you look for when you are programming this monthly club for the audience? Well, we're looking to share with the audience, uh, again, the type of uh, program we have at the festival and to um, then provide them an opportunity of something that they might not uh, get a chance to uh, to see uh, on the big screen uh, in, a, in, a, in a release. A number of our films, they, you know, they, they, they are finding distribution. In fact, nearly all of the films at uh, Sundance these days do find distribution, but to see them on the screen and such, you know, I mean, the, the quality um, of the picture and sound is incredible. And when you see them up, you know, so big on the screen like that, um, it's just a, you know, it is, it's just a, such a wonderful opportunity, I think, for the audience to see these films. But they're, you know, they're, they're really stemming again from the, um, the, from the programmers. And what we want to do here is expand our audience, um, not just have our um, screening uh, in in Park City around the festival time, to, but to really share uh, our films with uh, with audiences in LA and of course beyond. And we know we have a distribution label now, and we're busy expanding that. But to see it on the big screen at the ArcLight is just you know it's where you know it's it's what we want to see and where and, and the type of support we should be doing year round for our filmmakers. I think. Well, I, I can honestly say that having seen so many of these films on a small screen, on a medium screen, and then seeing them on the arc light screen, they take your breath away. And I think one of these films, for Yosemite in particular, on the arc light screen, I think people will just be blown away by the cinematography and it will just move them even more. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I... Yeah, and... um... I think one of the great things that's happening around that right now is that, you know, there's been a fear um, in independent film that, uh, you know, these low budget films coming through from these new filmmakers would, would, would sort of would perhaps disappear, find it harder to, uh, to, to sort of get on the big screen. But we're the partner like Arc, Arclight that is looking to bring, um, you know, these new unique voices uh, to, uh, to their destination. We're also able um, to make use of new technology. So for a number of filmmakers, this uh, DCP, it's called uh, the, the Digital Cinema Package, is very difficult to obtain, but through partners that we're working with at Slamdance, uh, Simple DCP in this case, we're able to um, you know, work with them and give this, uh, this file that we're able then to show at the, uh, at the ArcLight. And of course, all this technology um, is, is advancing uh, in its quality, but the cost of uh, the cost of it is coming down, which is great then for independent filmmakers who have who have limited budgets. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a uh, um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a great time for us to be able to launch 
uh, this this series at the at the at the outlay. Well, quite honestly, I think it's always a great time for independent film, <laughs> no matter when, no matter what the cost. <laughs> We well, need exactly, it. Debbie. And for, for us, I mean, for Arclight, this has been part of the promise that we have made to our guests in the, you know, over 13 years now that Arclight's been in existence is that we will always have, you know, a, a mix of product. They'll see the big blockbusters. They'll see independent, retrospective, you know, art films, anything. And, you know, I think it's, it's important to, for people to know that this series is, is continuing, it's ongoing each month. And, you know, right now we're here we are and, you know, for, coming off of Fourth of July weekend, you know, it, it's fun, blockbuster, great times at the movies. And this is part of that. There's, you know, mm-hmm. it's that you don't have to wait until December, you know, to see these great specialty films and these and these smaller independent films. We we want them out and we want them um, available to our audiences all the time, all year long. And and I think it's just it's something that you know, this partnership has allowed us just greater access to to quality films like that. Well, speaking of arc light quality, because our sound engineer brought this up earlier in the show today. And I mentioned it, and I'd like you to stress this for the audience, Gretchen. Brian was mentioning that one of the big problems uh, that he just experienced in a theater, not in Arclight, were people actually taking out their cell phones and filming some off the screen and filming part of the film and then sending it out over the Internet. Mm-hmm. This, this does not occur in an Arclight. Well, it, unfortunately, it happens, you know, it just happens so much anymore. And, and there's, I think there's this, we live in this world now where we feel like, you know, everything is, you know, people feel like everything is theirs to, to record and, and send out as their own. And, and we do, you know, a, a couple of things. We, you know, we do remind everyone with our greeters about, you know, what, what is audience, audience civility and, and keeping your cell phones away and, and, you know, not interrupting that. But we also have our crew members in, you know, in the audience and coming in to check and, but I also think we, we attract a different audience. We attract an audience of movie lovers, of people who have respect for filmmaking and respect for um, uh, seeing movies in theaters and, and wanting that experience for themselves and, and obviously wanting it for the people around them. So, you know, we're very fortunate that our, our audiences are respectful and, you know, and behave in a manner where they're not interrupting others. And we hope that that they can continue to you know, foster that amongst themselves. We don't want to ever have to be a, a, a policing situation, but that there's a mutual respect for the filmmaker and for fellow moviegoers. And, I mean, that's something that I truly appreciate every time I'm in an arc light, which I've been spending a lot more time in arc lights lately. I don't know why. <laughs> but, <laughs> but every well, time... we love it. Every time. It's a great experience. Good, so... Good. July's Arclight Slam Dance Cinema Club. Sunday night, July 12th at 8 o'clock is Yosemite. Monday night at 8 o'clock is On Her Own at the Arclight in Hollywood. Tickets are available online. Yosemite is going fast. Yeah, I think we just yeah. actually moved into the bigger, bigger theater for Yosemite. But, uh, so we were able to accommodate, um, thanks to the Arclight, uh, more, more, more people. But uh, yeah, it's going to be a popular popular weekend of screening film. Well, I can't wait for it, and I will be there next Monday night moderating your Q&A for On Her Own. 
So, Peter Gretchen, thank you so much for joining us for our monthly visit and chat about Arclight Slam Dance Cinema Club. Well, and thank you for having us again. We so appreciate it. Oh, our thank pleasure. Thanks, guys, and I will see you both soon. All right, Great. see you Monday. Bye. Bye-bye. And we're going to take a short break for Jordan's battery change, and we'll be right back with our next guest, Stacy Sherman, to talk about the breakup girl. Behind the Lens is sponsored in part by the Culver City Observer. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. back. You are listening to or watching Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Lynn Elias, Movie Shark DeBlore, and my sidekick and partner in cinematic crime, Greg Srizavazdi. DeepestStream.com. And if you want to get those two tickets, two pairs of tickets, right? Yep. Their choice for whichever film they want to see. Yosemite are on her own for Sunday, July 12th or Monday, July 13th at the Arclight in Hollywood. Email editor at DeepestStream.com. Yeah. So that should be fun. Terrific. And yeah. now we're moving on. Joining us now is Stacy Sherman, writer director of The Breakup Girl. Welcome, Stacy. How are you? I am fine. How are you? I'm good. I can hear you. You're a little um you sound a little a little low like like very distant in the background, but can you hear me? Hear yeah, we can, oh, hear, we can you. hear you yes. fine. Okay, good. Absolutely fine. Well, first of all, what an enjoyable film. Thank you. Uh, is the breakup girl, and I have to admit, you know, I found found it very surprising given your very eclectic background. I yes. mean, <laughs> associate producer of Chasing Ice, one of the great documentaries of our time. Thank you. Um, you know, and then you wrote uh, the script for Catherine Heigl's movie, uh, One for the Money. Yeah, I wrote that. I wrote that with a partner, my sister-in-law, over 20 years ago. <laughs> and then, of course, you do have an Oscar nomination and an Emmy to your name for the short God Sleeps in Rwanda, which was an absolutely amazing, amazing doc. And now... Thank you very much. Now you treat us to this narrative feature with an all-star cast, with laughs, with tears, with a dysfunctionally emotional family... <laughs> You got it completely. <laughs> <laughs> where where did this story come from, Stacy? You know what? Honestly, I started it in my twenties, and it was it was about a girl who was turning twenty nine. It was sort of an awkward age. I think it's an awkward age for for women or for for anybody. It's sort of a I'm about to be thirty. What have I done? Where am I going? Kind of a thing. And that was just sort of the beginning of the idea. And. I put it in a drawer for a really long time, and it, the script itself never had a third act. And then, you know, time went on, life went on. They did a bunch of other things, as you as you saw, and had a couple of children. And it just sort of later in life, I pulled it out and finished it. And so it started in one place and then went to another. If that makes sense, it makes it makes perfect sense. You know, to me, this film with all its comedic and dramatic elements. From an outsider's point of view, it seemed to me to be a very personal story. Was I accurate in my assessment, or was this just something that you just came out of? No, it's very personal. 
It's very personal. I mean, definitely. It's definitely people I know, people that are in my life, people that are in people's lives that I know. It's very personal. Well, you know, considering it's very personal, I have to ask you about Mary Kay Place, cast as our mom, Joan Uh Baker. Mary Kay is all over the... I just talked to her a couple weeks ago, um, and she's always such a joy. She's busier than ever now, and it's in roles like this that really give her a chance to shine with this effortless comedic timing that she has. That's exactly the way to put it. She, it is effortless comedic timing, but it comes from a place of, well, she's just a very naturally funny person. Um, and she's also incredibly smart. And I've been a fan of her work since she did a show called Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if you know the show. Oh, very, very well. Okay, so, you know, she, and she, so she's so good. And um, I was very, very lucky to have her. I mean, I, I've been, and Mary Kay knows this. I mean, I've been watching her work back to the days when she was guesting as, you know, on MASH. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She actually, Her IMDb, I'm sure, reads like an encyclopedia. Yeah. I mean, and it was one of the most charming, funny episodes, a nurse that fell for radar and vice versa. And she, she also wrote a couple episodes of MASH as well. So, Oh, she's really talented, and she's also a songwriter. And, you know, she's a serious songwriter. She's great. When I went to Atlanta with her with this movie, you know, everyone stops her of all ages. So... She's very appreciated and admired. Well, but then you also, in addition to getting Mary Kay, you then bring in Wendy McClendon Covey, who Mm -hmm. is at the top of her game right now. Yes, she is. You know, Kathy Bach, who I was so thrilled to see. I actually worked with her on Dukes of Hazzard. Oh, my God. And then, of course, Ray Wise. who, Who does not want to see Ray Wise as much as we can see him? He is so wonderful. I had dinner last night with a woman who was our on set photographer, and she was. You know, and she does a lot of, she photographs a lot of actors for movies, and she was just talking about Ray last night, because he is. He's got such a wonderful quality. He's very warm and um, very accessible and, you know, at the same time, very handsome. He's great, <laughs> and he's such a talented actor. I'm sure it pained her to take still photographs of him. It did. She was in a lot of pain, and Mary was in a lot of pain, you know, <laughs> working with Ray. There, Something she wrote to me about. There's all those a wh- painful painful shoots you know there's a wonderful sequence with shannon woodward um a monologue really well written and well acted and for you as the filmmaker can you just talk about the day of that shoot shooting that sequence and just getting that together because that's quite a standout moment thank you very much um it was a very hot day it was in it was in Catherine box backyard you know all of our locations fell through they didn't fall through. That's not true. What happened with the locations is, you know, it just began to get very expensive. And so Catherine was generous enough to say, we'll film this in my house, which was unbelievable of her. Um, so it was a hot day. It was in her backyard. She lives, her home is beautiful. It's near a flight path, like the Burbank Airport flight path. So we had to stop a lot for the planes. <laughs> But then, but then it all came together. Catherine's very warm, so her house is very, you know, warm. It was a very welcoming environment, but, you know, it had some challenges. Now, you know, one of the key elements of the film 
going beyond the outstanding performances in your casting, your cinematographer, Chris Robertson, something that you and Chris chose to do is you kept the visuals light. There's a, it's sunlit, but it's a natural whiter light. It goes with the whiter interiors in the houses, a lot of window space, and you utilize all of that. And I find that very refreshing, uh, albeit slightly dichotomous to some of the storyline that's happening underneath that we're not going to divulge because we don't want to give any spoilers. Um, Chris has an excellent eye. Um, he, he works with a, a cinematographer named Mandy Walker, and um, that's how I met Chris. Um, but he just comes with this magnificent eye, and he, he does a lot of commercials. But, um, you know, every shot was very carefully thought out, and we talked a lot. We talked for months and months before about the tone of the movie, that even though there's a lot of tension and, and all of that amongst the family members, that we wanted it to have, you know, we really wanted the look of it to be, to just sort of be easy on the eyes. Mm-hmm. And it, it very much is. It goes with your entire cast, which are all very yeah. easy on the eyes. Now, how is this, how, what was the learning curve like for you jumping into the director's chair for a narrative feature? It's one thing to direct a documentary short to be involved in documentary shorts, but now you've got 90 minutes roughly to fill as a director and to make that leap to a different type of storytelling. What's the expression, trial by fire? I mean, it's a huge, it's a huge learning curve. It's, I literally thought, well, I'd like my first narrative feature just to be sort of a small family movie. That was my intention going in, and of course, it was a large cast. So there was so much more to juggle than I, than I anticipated. Um, I just sort of had no idea. I know that sounds really naive, but often you don't know, you don't sort of know what you're doing until you're doing it mm -hmm. in terms of what it's going to take. So, you know, there was just a tremendous amount to learn, a tremendous amount to grasp quickly you know, 100 decisions every minute um, and wanting everyone to be really comfortable at the same time. You know, it, people came in and worked for, for very little and, you know, they didn't have trailers. It was a very, you know, we had minimal, minimal money. So, <laughs> you know, it was a lot of running around and, and all of that, but... Um, but they got to sh you got to shoot in Kathy Bach's house. We got to shoot in Kathy Bach's house. And she could not have been more gracious. So when someone asks you, I'm going to make a film, and I have a very limited limited budget, but I really want to make it work, what, what kind of advice would you give this filmmaker? I would say make sure your script is as tight as it could be. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a script that works going in, you know, you're going to be in trouble because there's changes that happen along the way. People want to try things, you know, on the spot. And if your script is solid and you have the foundation of the script, then all of that, you know, is great and just adds to it. Um, I would also say that, you know, don't get hung up if you don't get the actor you think you have to have because there's so much talent out there and there's so many good people. 
So never, don't get hung up on a person or a song. Um, and I would say that if something doesn't feel right to you, it's not right. Mm-hmm. And to try to stick with that, to try to stick with your gut as much as you can, because there's, you know, a lot of things coming at you and a lot of, a lot of different, you know, um, a lot of different opinions, and a lot of those opinions are great, but sometimes you just have to, you know, stand on your own. I got, I got to throw this in there, but if I actually hiked up a hill in, in L.A., and I heard the din, <laughs> the roar of traffic, if I was in a Zen state, could I hear the sound of the ocean? What is your, what is your opinion on that? Absolutely. Okay, oh, wonderful. <laughs> There's some Spanish expression about that. You know, if you close your eyes, anything, you know. I guess you can imagine anything. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Just don't awesome. fall down the hill into the freeway traffic. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, Stacy, at the end, before we let you go here, I mean, this is fabulous. I have to t- set up. I, I got to call Karen and set up a one-on-one with you. Off, I would love off, that. off the air to really get dig deep into the into this film. But I have to ask you, what did you learn about yourself in the process of making the Breakup Girl? How much airtime do we have? <laughs> I learned a lot. Um, I, I don't even know how to answer that in, in a short sentence. I, I want to think about that and call you back and say, you know, the main thing I learned is X. Not to be, you know, too ponderous about it. I don't know. I think, um, I think the thing I learned is that I didn't know, and maybe this goes back to what you said, what you asked a second ago. The movie you shoot is often not the movie you wrote. And if you sort of know that, it just it, you're you just open up that much more. I don't, I don't that makes like that sense. answer. That makes I mean, sense. I know what I'm I, I think I have to think of another answer. Well, no, that's a good you answer. have you can I'll tell you what. <laughs> you can think of an answer and you can call us back next week again and you can give us another answer. Here's what I learned. I learned that directing a movie is a lot like raising children. And I don't mean that they were children. I just mean there's so much to do and there's so much to round up and there's so much to delegate. But it's a lot like it's a lot like being a mother, I would say. <laughs> well, Stacy, thank you so much you. for calling in. And you and I will be talking more as soon as I get hold of Karen this afternoon. And uh, I can't wait to talk to you more about The Breakup Girl. I appreciate it, you guys. Thank you so much. Thanks, Daisy. Bye. Bye. And now we have joining us the very talented Gabrielle Demestre. Did I get did I get your last name right, Gabrielle? Um, it's Demestre, but very close. Demestre. (laughs) Well, I I think you've got you. Thank you for joining us here on on Behind the Lens. Um, Oh, thank you so much for having me. I mean, this is a real treat. Yosemite is. A stunning film. I'm so thrilled to see it after having seen The Color of Time, which you were also involved in. Um, yeah, exactly. I made one of those short segments. I mean, a beautiful, that was a beautiful film that I just fell in love with. And here you oh, are. thank you so much. And now with Yosemite, you're adapting James Franco's book, Palo Alto. You're directing James Franco again. You, yes. He was your quote-unquote professor at NYU Film School. Um, um, he wasn't, actually. He was my classmate. Your we classmate? We were in the same class in film school. 
So, so and, how, how do you get to make a film adapting a James Franco book and then directing James Franco yet again? Um, so we had worked together on a number of short films as classmates, and then one of them being The Color of Time, which he produced. Um, and he had really generously asked me to make one of the segments mm-hmm. for that film. Um, and then when he wanted to adapt his book, Palo Alto, he asked, he had uh, Gia Coppola do the, uh, adapt some of the stories about the teenagers, and then he asked me to do three stories that are about childhood. Um, so it had come initially from working together on a number of films and projects. But he's been an incredibly generous and supportive mentor and, you know, gave me the opportunity to make my first feature film. And you make your first feature film, and it ends up as the closing night at Slamdance. And now, so many tickets have already been sold for the Arclight Slamdance Cinema Club. They just moved your film into a bigger theater for Sunday night. Oh, that's amazing. I'm so excited. I've heard wonderful things about the Arclight. I've actually never been. (gasps) And everyone seems very excited, so I can't wait. It is. It's a wonderful movie-going experience. Uh, the cr- the audience really appreciates film, and the fact that so many tickets have already been sold, they had to move you into a, the bigger theater. Oh yeah, that's that's so great. I didn't know that. Yeah, we just found out not twenty minutes ago, live on oh, air cool. from <laughs> from Gretchen McCourt and Peter Baxter. Yeah, you know. Oh, that's so great. I'm so excited. Also, a lot of the people who work on the film um, live in LA and. They're, you know, they're very excited to see the film because it hasn't played in California yet. And I have to tell you, when you see your film on the ArcLight yeah. screen, oh, it's yeah. like nothing you have. It's nothing like what you saw at Slam Dance. Oh yeah, and so uh, Slam Dance was a wonderful audience and very fun <laughs> screening. But I can imagine this is going to be like a bigger projection. Oh, it's you, gorgeous! You know, your film's really beautifully shot, and there's so many great visual compositions and the story is so subtle and complex at the same time just wondering when oh, you, thank you yeah no worries when you were growing up were you a film fan um with the were you a visual composition fan did you love images early from the get-go and was that one of the elements that drove you into filmmaking yeah i've always loved photography and then you know i've always loved film as well but one of the first sort of my in into actually making films was i studied photography in college and I really fell in love with, you know, making photographs. And then that sort of made me feel like I could make films, you know, not just watch them. Mm. Um, so that's like a very important element to me is the aesthetic of the film and framing and lighting. And and I think if you have a kind of, if that draws you in and you have a powerful visual experience, then you're kind of, you know, can take, get people on board with the story you're telling. So that's definitely very important to me. Well, and the visuals here, it, it's very, you've got, you're using a lot of low light. You've got your two cinematographers, Bruce's work, I know. Um, oh, yeah. So, this is amazing. And you also incorporate the filmic grain. So we feel the 1985 period, and the, you give the film a very timeless quality that is akin to the timelessness of youth, actually. Yeah, that was the hope for that we wanted to make something that was very like detailed and specific to the period, but not so much so that it was distracting. So you know, usually I I enjoy period films when they're you can get into all the detail, but you're you can relate to it. It doesn't feel like a museum piece or you know 
it doesn't take you out of it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the key um, one of the key things that you do with your story that goes hand in hand with your visuals is you always maintain the the point of view and the emotional uh, perspective of these fifth grade boys. You never, nowhere in the script, nowhere in the dialogue, nowhere in the visuals, do we feel like you're in, insinuating an adult's perception or perspective. Was that difficult to achieve in writing the script? Um, I think a lot of it, of the amazing detail came from the short story. So that was really helpful. Um, I think there were a lot of like childhood memories that James had that he incorporated that, that people really relate to, you know, like putting the penny on the train tracks and like the kid putting himself in danger and like things that are kind of visceral childhood memories. And of course Um, we can easily see James Franco doing that too. Yeah. (laughs) And then I, I and then I brought a lot of my own memories to it as well. Um, so I think, yeah, I had a. For, I mean, it was sort of a several-step process. Like first, you kind of just try to put yourself in the in that mind frame, and then when you're working with the kids, you know, you're obviously I'm very not the same age as them, so I'm trying to get them to get into that mind frame. So however it is that they would, you know. Walk on the train tracks. I try to get them to be themselves and like just feel kind of like they're actually doing it, you know, not just acting. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I think it's like part of it is the writing, and then part of it is helping the kids kind of be in that space to really, you know, um, just experience things and have a good time. I got a quick geeky question for you. I think your opening credit sequence is one of the most memorable, memorable opening credits I've seen. Period. Um, I'm, I'm also a gamer. Can you just talk about getting that the, that opening credit sequence in and and your idea for that? It was amazing. Oh sure, thank you so much. I, yeah, the um, the guys who did the opening credit sequence, they're called. It's a studio in Chile called Smog, mm-hmm. and they also made the um, the credits for. Crystal Fairy and a bunch of other films, oh, um, great, and they're great. And I, I felt like the movie needed like something that kind of sets the tone for that, puts you into the eighties and makes you feel like you're in a child's world. Yeah. Um, so we actually worked for quite a long time. Like I had this idea of these different images, and he made um, Pablo Gonzalez, the illustrator. He made these beautiful illustrations, but they didn't feel like period accurate. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of work getting it just right. You know, like and making sure that it would have been something that you would have seen back then mm-hmm. and kind of setting the kind of mysterious, spooky tone, I think, for the movie. Well, you know, talk about getting it right. You've definitely got it right, casting your three young boys, casting Chris, Joe, and Ted. How difficult was that casting process? Because these um, three are just, the camera loves them. Their personality is fabulous, and I really hope that all three continue uh, on this path acting. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it, it, was, it wasn't so hard as much as, like, it took a long time because I knew that it would kind of make or break the film, you know, especially having three 10-year-old boys, and you can't have one that's not as good as the others. So I just, that was sort of a thing I decided was I'm going to spend a lot of time casting and I, as soon as I knew that we had, you know, we started doing a script reading in New York, and then I found one of the kids at an after-school theater program here, and then I went out to California to do research, and I found another kid through a casting director. So I just put 
I put in a lot of time. Um, and yeah, it was, but then it's like, of course, you're still afraid that they're not going to have the like required focus or they're going to get bored or like it's gonna, once you turn on the camera, they're not going to be as good as in the audition. So it was really like a huge relief and amazing to see that they were all great. And like, I think they really enjoyed making the film. I mean, each one is just very, you know, very dynamic. I mean, you are drawn into them, especially the way you really utilize silence in their performances. Is that is that challenging to do with a kid? You know, to, um, to those quiet, extended shots that you have that just say so much about, you know, a, a kid just thinking, pondering, you know, looking at the penny, kicking the rocks, looking at their dirty feet. Um, they're real. It's like you're just you're mesmerized watching each of the boys in those moments. Oh yeah, I think. Well, it's sort of like. You know, it depends on their personality. Like, I think they had different... I tried to sort of modulate it to, you know, to fit each boy's personality as much as I could. But it was, I think one of the keys, which is kind of the key to acting in general, is, like, giving them an activity or, you know, something to be doing or thinking about so that they're not self-conscious. Mm-hmm. Um, so in those moments, that was important. Like, you know, when the um, character Joe's lying in bed reading comics and he prays, about his the, his little brother who passed away. Mm-hmm. Then that was important to like he was first he was doing it on the, the bed and like it felt kind of not it felt a little bit fake. But then when I gave him the comic book to read, it kind of like made him feel like he was actually in bed and actually in the situation. So mm-hmm. a lot of it had to do with you know giving them things to do that made them sort of not self conscious, mm-hmm. and then they could be themselves and you know as quiet and observant as they might be. Well, Gabrielle, in real life. we have now actually run out of time on the show oh. for today. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is, I mean, I, I would love to talk to you more about Yosemite. Um, an amazing film, and everybody can see it at the Arclight Sunday the 12th at 8 o'clock in Hollywood. They can still get tickets, but they are going fast. Thank you so much for joining Thank us today. Thank you so, so much. It was lovely talking to you. Thanks, Gabrielle. Okay. Bye-bye. And that's all the time we have today. We'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.